This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, as we come to your word once again, we pray that you may help us to put aside our worries and the cares of the world around us, especially with this COVID-19 situation, and all the more draw comfort and strength and faith through your word and scripture. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now many people use the word Jesus Christ. But what does it really mean, Christ? Some people use it as a swear word. Some people use it in a very familiar way. You know, like uh, when I was in Australia, they'll say like, oh, you know, the old JC. Right? So, what does it mean by the Christ? And more importantly, what does it matter? What difference does the Christ make in my life, my relationships, my values? So today, as we begin looking at the passage, I want us to cast our mind back to last week. Because okay? last week is quite important as we move through the passage. And last week we saw a very surprising miracle by Jesus. Do you remember what happened last week? He healed the blind man. He made the blind man see. Now, it doesn't seem like a very surprising miracle, right? I mean, obviously Jesus had done more impressive miracles. He had walked on water before. He had done more public miracles. He fed the 5,000 men and innumerable women and children. Even as the healing, the opening of the blind man not very impressive, right? It's not the same as Jesus healing the paralytic or Jesus making Jairus' daughter rise from the dead. So what was so surprising about last week's miracle? It was surprising because Jesus has two goals at healing the blind man. If you remember, Jesus spits in his hand, touches his eyes, then he opens the eyes and what happens? He sees people walking around like trees, right? So as he heals the man, what does he see? So, you know, he sees really imperfectly, very blurry, and very dimly. So, I've got a Christian friend of mine who's an ophthalmologist, and uh, he's been bugging me for years to get my eyes fixed with LASIK. And he said, Ah, Andrew, what do you want to wear glasses for? Come, come, come. I'll give you a discount. You know, I'll do LASIK. You know, you don't know what LASIK is, right? You have this operation so that, you know, you don't have to wear glasses anymore. You can, you can basically see without glasses. Now, imagine if I go see my Christian friend. Go have his operation, get some discount. I walk out of the uh, operating theater and I bump into someone and I say, Oh, so sorry, I thought you were a tree. Now, obviously, I want to go back to my friend and say, Hey, I want my money back, right? Because you, you've obviously done a bad job. I mean, you, you, you give me operation, everybody looks like trees walking around. So, is that the same with Jesus? Did he do a bad job with the guy's healing? Did he get the prescription wrong, maybe? Or maybe he just was having a bad day that day. Well, I don't think so, right? Because as we looked last week, we saw that this miracle was like a parable healing. It was like an instructive miracle, a lesson miracle, a teaching miracle. It was a miracle of illumination. Because just as Jesus opened the eyes of the blind man, and so they were blurry, so in the same way, the disciples' eyes, their spiritual sight was impaired. They couldn't see clearly. They only saw in a blurry, imperfect way. So if you remember all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 8, they've been going back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. The disciples have seen miracle after miracle after miracle. They've heard sermon after sermon after sermon. They said through parable, parable after parable, but they still don't know that, that Jesus is the Christ. So here we see, last week, is that 
the disciples can actually see who Jesus is. But then now, the next slide, uh, as this blind man had his eyes open, so in the same way, the disciples had their eyes open. And so they were able to see Jesus as he really was. Right? They are able to see Jesus as he really was. And that's why in verse 27 to verse 13, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Now when you think about this, the people of the generation, the crowds, in a sense, they are not seeing Jesus clearly. They rank Jesus very highly, right? It's almost like he is the greatest of the generation. Because you know if you're a prophet, you're like the greatest of the generation. But what they rank Jesus highly actually is too low in the reality. So Jesus, they thought, was a prophet. What does a prophet do? The prophet looks to the future. But Jesus is not the future. He doesn't look to the future. Jesus is the now, right? The future has arrived in Jesus. John the Baptist, Elijah, were meant to prepare the way for the future king. But Jesus is not the one who prepares the way. He is the one who is the king. And finally, therefore, when Peter's eyes are open and the disciples' eyes are open, they are able to recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the everlasting, eternal, powerful king. Now, for you and me, we'll be like, oh, finally, right? You can, uh, you can put it on your Twitter you can put it, load a picture on your Facebook or your, or, or your Instagram, your arm around Jesus saying, look, this is the Christ, right? But look at what Jesus says in verse 30. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Isn't that really curious? Like, finally, finally, the needle dropped, the pin dropped, sorry, and they recognize that Jesus is the Christ, but Jesus doesn't want them to tell anybody else. Why is that? Well, if you look at verse 31 to 33, this is the answer, right? He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his, at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You see, as we look back, when Peter and the disciples recognized that Jesus was the Christ, their minds were filled with all sorts of things. Their minds were filled with all sorts of ideas, dreams, and hopes. Their minds were filled with all sorts of plans, schemes, and aspirations because the disciples, just like the Jews of their day, expected that the Messiah, the King, would be this powerful figure who would take over the Davidic throne and rule forever with justice and righteousness. And so the disciples probably expected that, you know, on the right hand will be John, Peter, and on the other hand there will be, you know, all these other disciples. They thought that this would be great. So I remember many years ago, I wanted to go and tell my parents uh, that I wanted to do a full-time Christian ministry. So I was really worried about what my parents would say. I was filled with trepidation as I went to speak to my parents. So I told my parents, uh, Mom, Dad, I want to become a minister. So in my mind, what I was saying was, I want to become a pastor minister. But in their mind, they thought, I wanted to become a government minister. 
Right. So my dad said to me, finance minister is the best. Right. So that was the same thing with uh, the, the disciples, right? When they said, hey, Jesus is the Christ, they were expecting to go to Jerusalem and to be like government ministers with power, influence, and with uh, all the trappings that come with it. But Jesus says very clearly, right? You notice here, he spoke clearly to them, plainly to them, that he would suffer many things, he would be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of law, he must be killed, and on the third day, rise again. Now this is completely different from what the disciples were expecting. Now, that's probably why Jesus said, don't go and tell anybody about what you've learned, right? Because their expectations of the Christ was very different from the reality of the Christ that God had preordained for Jesus. So as we look at this passage here, the Jews had two lines of prophecy which they were looking forward to, right? There were two lines or two tracks of prophecy that they were looking forward to. The first track really was of a Messiah, a Christ, a King, who would take over the Davidic throne, who would rule for eternity. The other track was of this mysterious person that we learned of two years ago when we did Isaiah, of the suffering servant. This person would suffer, be rejected, and die on behalf of people. So if you remember, in Isaiah 53, which we studied just only about a year ago or two years ago, this is in Isaiah 53. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So if you look at the next picture, the two lines of expectation of prophecy in the Old Testament was one to this Christ, this King, this everlasting uh, Messiah. But the other line of expectation was of this suffering servant, a person who would die and be rejected for the sins of people. Jesus says that these two lines of prophecy, these two tracks of expectation, do not lead to two different people, but actually lead to one person himself. And that's why in the next uh, picture, right, you see the, the cross within the crown, that within Jesus is the fulfillment of the suffering servant as well as the Davidic Christ. Now if you notice the word here on the next slide, Jesus keeps saying that these things must happen. The Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. So these are not optional extras of the Christ. They're not possibilities or probabilities of the Christ. These are divine necessities, divine imperatives, divine certainties. And we must really grasp this idea of must, right? Because it means that when people say, oh, you know, Jesus went to the cross, 
It was just an accident of history. Or maybe it was just a hallucination. Maybe it was just imagination. No, it's not. It was planned. It was predestined. It was preordained and predetermined by God's will. That's why it must happen. And that's why Jesus is speaking very plainly to his disciples and saying, look, he forewarns them, prepares them, and alerts them that he is the one who suffers, reject, is rejected, and dies by the hands of men. Now that's why in verse uh, 32, uh, Jesus, when he speaks his things, uh, obviously doesn't make the disciples very happy. In verse 32 it says, he spoke very plainly about this, right? He was very straightforward. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Peter, Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You see, uh, this word rebuke is a very powerful word, right? It's like Jesus rebuke the demons. Jesus rebuke Satan. So when Peter rebukes Jesus, he's like talking down to Jesus, right? It's a bit like this picture. Right? He says, so Peter is telling Jesus to get with the program, right? Okay, if you are the Christ, this is what the expectation is, right? You know, none of this rejection, none of this suffering, none of this getting killed, right? Like, you, you know, you, you, you kind of got the script wrong, Jesus. But by doing so, you, you notice what's happening? If God had predetermined this, if God had preordained this, God had predestined this, then what is Peter doing? He's turning Jesus away from the will of God to following Satan. That's why Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, because he's actually tempting Jesus to go against what God wants. And more than that, the motivation of Peter does not come from God's concerns, but human concerns, it says there. And I think that's very true, right? All of us here, and I'm sure I speak for all of you, how many of you like to avoid suffering? Yes, we all like to avoid suffering, right? Any of you run towards suffering? No, right? Any of you like rejection? No, right? We avoid rejection and we run towards approval. We run towards applause, acclaim, power, glory, and position. And that's the motivation of Peter, right? He wants to avoid suffering, avoid rejection, avoid death, and he wants to move towards, run towards, acclaim, applause, power, glory, and kingdom. But that's not the way God has planned for Jesus. That's not the way that the Christ is meant to live his life. And I think that's very important for us to understand. We follow a Christ who is a rejected Christ. We follow a Christ who is a suffering Christ. We follow a Christ who is a murdered Christ. And it's very important because if we don't get the right understanding of the Christ that we are following, then we are actually following our own human invention rather than God's will. So many years ago, I went to a prosperity gospel church. And the pastor was going on and on and on and on about how rich Jesus was. Jesus was a very rich man, he was telling all of us. Why? Because Jesus, when he was crucified, uh, the, the soldiers drew lots for his one-piece undergarment. Right? He was like wearing one-piece underpants. And only very rich people in the time wore this one-piece undergarments or underpants. And he was going on and on about it for like ages, you know. And I was sitting there thinking, 
It's like you're focusing on just one verse and you've missed the big picture, right? Because there's Jesus hanging on the cross and you're focusing on his underpants and saying how rich he is, right? Because even if you look at the passage, the whole passage is full of Jesus being rejected and suffering and dying and you're focusing on his underpants to tell us how rich he is. The thing is, you see, if you look at the wrong Jesus, then you're actually looking at it from a human concern. You're not looking at it from God's concern. So many years ago, actually it's not many years ago, it feels like many years, but I went to uh, Barcelona uh, for a holiday and uh, we went to this museum. Actually in the museum, uh, there's, there's one whole floor full of religious art. Okay. And actually, if you look at this picture here, mo- most of the museum was pictures of Jesus being uh, crucified. Like. Okay. Or actually not most, of, but a lot of it. Like, because it's a very popular, uh, I guess, thing to paint. And the thing that I noticed, though, it's actually in every picture that you paint of Jesus, it's very hard for you to paint the crucified Jesus to reflect how rich he is. Can you be hanging on the cross half-naked and be a really successful man? It's a bit difficult to paint that, right? And if if you look at this picture, the reality of Jesus is that he is a suffering Christ, he is a rejected Christ, and he is a murdered Christ. And that is a very, very important point to remember because the Christ that we follow is not the rich, successful Christ, but rather the suffering, rejected, murdered Christ. So keep the idea in your mind, because as we keep the idea in our mind, then it makes sense of what we read next. So in verse 34, Jesus goes on. Then he called the crowd to him along with disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now this is a very important point we need to pay attention to. You notice here Jesus calls the crowd to him along with his disciples. That means that the instructions of Jesus is not to like the super duper 12 disciples. It's not to the full time workers. Neither is it to the missionaries or the pastors. It is to anyone who wants to follow Jesus. This is Jesus speaking to everyone. And what does he say to everyone? If you want to follow me, want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. Now what does it mean to deny yourself? To deny yourself is to say no to yourself. right? So you want something, but you say no, you deny yourself. So my sister is a Catholic who lives in Australia. And the Catholics practice a lot of traditions. And one of the traditions is during Lent. You know we're in Lent now? It's not Lent, it's not I lend you something. Right? Lent is like a period 40 days before Good Friday, Easter. And the Catholics during this period will deny themselves something. So I asked my sister, Say, hey, uh, so what are you denying yourself? And she said, ice cream. Now, Jesus is not saying, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves ice cream and follow me, right? Because if you look at this passage, he tells us how much you need to deny yourself. He says, deny themselves and take up their cross. This is the extent of the self denial that Jesus is looking for in his followers. Now today, we think of the cross and maybe some of you may be wearing crosses. People may have cross tattoos. People wear earrings with crosses. People have t-shirts with crosses on it. So for us, crosses is like no big deal. right? But in the ancient world, the cross was a symbol of the worst execution 
that you could experience, the worst pain and suffering you could experience. The Romans call it Martha Maxima, which means like the maximum punishment, right? Maxima. Maximum punishment. And the Romans uh, were also very good at entertainment. You know, that's why when you go to Rome, you see all these cathedrals, right? Before Hollywood, there was Rome, I suppose. They were very good at making a spectacle of the people that they were being executed. Not, not spectacles, right? But spectacle, as in, you know, attraction, entertainment. So what you would do is, if you're going to be executed, the Romans think, you know, why waste this opportunity not to entertain people? So what they would do is, let's say you're being executed, you'd be forced to carry your cross, maybe just the center horizontal beam or the whole thing up the, up the street. Right? So imagine if Singapore was not a Singapore colony, we were a Roman colony, there would be somebody, somebody walking up up a Serangoon Road toward, towards uh, where the cemetery used to be. Right? So you see this guy walking up and now we can jeer at him, we can throw tomatoes at him, we can throw eggs at him, we can laugh at him. It's part of the entertainment spectacle, right? But if you look at someone who is carrying their cross, walking to their crucifixion, what do you see? You're seeing a dead man walking. Because after this person hits the end of the road, they're going to be hung on the cross, they're going to die. And that's what Jesus is saying. You want to be his disciple? You want to follow him? You must deny yourself to the extent where you are like a dead person walking. You have to deny yourself up to your very life. So imagine, right this moment, okay, maybe I should have some play acting, right? Don't matter. Lah. Somebody bursts through that door of a gun and says, anybody here is a Christian, I'm going to shoot. Who here is a Christian? Put out your hand. How many of you will put out your hand? Okay, well, we've got a few. That's good, that's good. Okay. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying, right? It's like, how much are you willing to deny yourself to follow him? And what he says here, you have to follow yourself, follow him and deny yourself to the extent where you would take up your cross and be willing to die to be loyal to him. Now I want you to notice that word must again, right? We keep following, coming across this word must over and over again in this passage. Because what Jesus is saying cannot be watered down, cannot be diluted, it cannot be weakened, right? He says, you must Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That's what it says, right? It's not, not Andrew Wong making it up, right? Now for us today, I thank God, I'm sure you all thank God, we live in a society where literally we don't have to deny ourselves because, you know, we've got to go to Changi and die as Christians or something, right? But I think that in verse 38, it shows us that there is a very real way where we need to deny ourselves and take up our cross. And it's found in verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me, uh, I think it's in the next slide, I can't remember. Yep. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now here is something that we can relate to, I think. To be ashamed of Jesus. Um, I remember I've been occasions where I go to a dinner with my father and he's with his rich businessman friends. And then when I first started going to theological college when I was a young pastor, they would ask me what I did for a living. And I'd be tempted to say I was, I was an accountant. Right? Because when you're in that sort of setting, that sort of society, rather than say that you're just a minister or a pastor, 
it's much more acceptable to say, I'm an accountant. That's the temptation we all face, to be ashamed of Jesus in the world that we live in. But I think it's much more than that, right? Because it says there, ashamed of me and my, my words. Right? It's not just ashamed of Jesus as a person, as Christ, but ashamed of the demands of Jesus, the commands of Jesus, the words of Jesus. So many weeks ago, or actually many months ago, I had a really, really interesting conversation with this very young, vibrant, intelligent um, Christian person. Could be easily one of you people here, right? And this person said to me, and I, and I want you to know exactly what they said. They said, I want to move on from the Jesus of my youth. And I want to find a Jesus which is closer to my authentic self. <clears throat> you can see it's a young person speaking because old people don't speak like this, right? Okay? I want to move on from the Jesus of my youth and I want to find a Jesus that's closer to my authentic self. And after talking to this person for a while, see, I, I don't tell you what gender it is, right? so I'm making it very big. After talking to this person for a while, I realized that actually what this person meant was that when they were growing up, they, they believed in the biblical Jesus. They were, they were, you know, what they were taught in church. It's a Jesus who commands things, the Jesus that demands things, who demands godliness, demands sanctification, demands ideas, very strict ideas of sexuality, lifestyle and thinking. And what this person was really saying is they want to move on from this type of Jesus, the Jesus who makes these commands and his words, to a more relaxed Jesus, a more chill Jesus, a Jesus which is more in tune with the non-judgmental world that we live in, more in tune with the values of the world around them. Now, if you're tempted to think like this, if you're ever tempted to think like this, then I want you to consider carefully again the words of Jesus, which are up here. Can we flash it up again? The words of Jesus again? Because he says, if you are ashamed of me and my words, right, then I will be ashamed of you in the future. Now, this is very important, the me and my words. Because, you see, we are quite clever, like all of us, and we are quite skillful in trying to avoid rejection, suffering, uh, peer pressure in some ways. So we make different sorts of Jesus, a Jesus which is more acceptable in the world's eyes. So we you know we can have an equality Jesus. So Jesus Christ, the one I believe in, is the one that brings equality into the world. We've got to fight discrimination, fight oppression. I can believe in a social justice Christ. A Christ which, you know, is very focused on helping the poor and the oppressed. I can focus on a very successful Christ, you know. I believe in Jesus because this Jesus brings me success and well-being. Or I can believe in a, a love Christ. This Christ is all about love, you know, affirming one another, loving one another. The problem is all these Christs are human inventions, right? Because as we've looked at the book of Mark, what are the words of Jesus? He's not the love Jesus or the successful Jesus or the equality Jesus or the social justice Jesus. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. He is a repentance Christ. He takes repentance very seriously. He says, 
that we are sinners and we need to acknowledge our sins so that we can be forgiven. He, he is the doctor that comes for the sick, not the healthy. He is the Jesus who speaks words about hell and judgment. The problem is that in the world that we live in, if you talk about repentance, you talk about sin, you talk about forgiveness, you talk about hell, these are not the words which bring approval, affirmation, or commendation. But why is that? Why is it the world responds so negatively to the words of Jesus? Repentance, sin, hell, forgiveness. Because we live in an adulterous and sinful world. Okay, when Jesus says this adulterous and sinful generation, I think that extends all the way to our time. What does it mean to be adulterous? To be adulterous means to betray your loyalty, right? To, to turn your back to someone that you should be loyal to. Uh, to be sinful is to not take sin seriously, to be very comfortable with sin. So as Christians, if we are faithful to God, then of course the world which is adulterous will clash with us, isn't it? Because we are trying to be faithful to God and this world is adulterous, of course we will be different in our attitudes and values. If we take sin very seriously and the world takes sin very lightly, then of course we will clash again. And within the world that we live in, this adulterous and sinful world, therefore, there will be pressure, great pressure, on us to be ashamed of Jesus and his words. Because just by looking at us as Christians, we are kind of like rebuking the world, right? It's like, wow, we are faithful to God. Then when they look at us, in a sense, we are, we are an example to them that they are, they are faithless and they are disloyal to God. They are adulterous. If we are serious about sin, then when the world interacts with us, we are in a sense correcting them and saying, you are sinners. So, it's very hard when you are faced with this pressure. But Jesus makes the warning, right? That if you are ashamed of Jesus today in this world because of your friends, your family, your workmates, your classmates, then what happens? The Son of Man, Jesus, will be ashamed of you, them, when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. See, when Jesus comes on that day, at the beginning of eternity, whose opinion would be more important. Now think about it for a second. When Jesus comes with his holy angels in his Father's glory, on that day, whose opinion will be more important? Your friends or Jesus? Right, on that day, whose opinion will be more important? Your workmates or Jesus? Uh, whose opinion will be more important than your, your, your schoolmates or Jesus? Of course, Jesus, right? On that day. All the pressure that we face now, today, will be insignificant. When Jesus comes with his glorious uh, coming with his holy angels. So the challenge for us is, are we denying ourselves? Are we taking our cross? And I think within this particular context, it's talking about, are we taking our cross? And are we willing to deny ourselves the approval, the applause, and the affirmation of this world? Are we, are we willing to deny ourselves that in order not to be ashamed of Jesus? Now, in verse 35 to 37, Jesus gives his rationale and reasoning why it is that we must deny ourselves even to the point of taking our cross and dying for him. Verse 35. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man, or sorry, for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can someone, anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now, if someone were to come in here with a gun and say, put out your hands if you're a Christian and I'll kill you, in the world's eyes, based on human concerns, because we avoid suffering, we avoid uh, you know, death, it wouldn't seem like very logical for us to put up our hands and die, right? Because obviously, uh, we try to avoid death as much as possible, like, especially in COVID-19 situation. Right? Uh, we, we don't like to die uh, prematurely. Uh, maybe when we reach 95, then maybe we consider death appropriate. But Jesus is actually saying that to deny yourself and to die for him is the most logical, rational thing to do. If you look at this passage, uh, you know sometimes when we prepare sermons, we're asked to consider what is the mood of the passage. Right? What is the mood of the passage? Uh, Jesus is not irritated here. No? He's not very exasperated. He's not angry. He's more like a businessman. He's more like a banker. You know, if you ever go to the bank, you know, they're, they're, they're not agitated, emotional people. All right? They're like very rational. Like, okay, this is, the, this is the profit. This is the loss. This is the return. This is the gain. And this is what Jesus is saying here. He's like a banker and he's looking at the profit and loss statement. And he's saying, what is the profit? What is the loss? What is the gain? What is the good? So he makes a lot of comparisons here. right? So if you look up here, he says, what good is it if you save this short, short physical life and you lose your eternal life? Do you remember when we studied Ecclesiastes? Many years ago, how is life on this earth described? It's described as vapor, steam. Right? It's like here one moment it's gone. He said, what good is it if you save the steam, the mist of this short life and you lose eternal life? Or what good is it if you gain the whole world even, but you lose your eternal soul? Or, what good is it in the next slide, right? If you, in the present, are ashamed of Jesus, but when Jesus comes in the future, he is ashamed of you. All right, again, the next slide. The next slide. Is it worth the applause and the approval of this world? But then, when Jesus comes, you you lose uh, the kingdom of God. And so, when you look at it this way, then of course. It is worth denying yourself up to the point of going to the cross for Jesus because He offers the eternal whereas the world offers the very temporary. So in conclusion, I watched this movie and I, I'm sure nobody has seen it here. Okay, anybody seen this movie? City Slickers. Oh, okay. One person. So anyway, I watched the movie many years ago called City Slickers. Uh, it's a very old movie. That's why it says classic. Okay? <laughs> classic means very old. All right? And uh, it's about this guy. Uh, he, he doesn't act very much anymore, Billy Crystal. And he's, uh, he's like this midlife crisis. Like, right? you know, he's, got, he's, he's, he's unhappy with his job, unhappy with his personal life. He's unhappy with life in general. So you know what he does? He goes off to become a real cowboy. Uh, he goes off, you know, he rides horses becomes a cowboy. So by the end of the movie, uh, he says, the secret of life 
is one thing. So they say, oh, what do you mean, what do you mean? What's the secret of life? The secret of life is one thing. And what do you mean, secret of life is one thing? That's it. The secret of life is one thing. There must be something in your life, this one thing, which is worth living for. There must be one thing in your life which is very, very important to you that makes life worth living. That's the secret of life. The secret of life is one thing. So what is the secret of your life? What is that one thing that makes life worth living? Is it the approval of the world, the approval of friends? Is it worldly power, glory, dreams, whatever? Well, Jesus here is very rude, right? He says a very provocative thing because what he's really saying is unless Jesus, the Christ, is that one thing in your life, then really, your life is a waste of time. Because you can have the whole world, he says. But if you've lost your eternal soul, then you have lost. That's what he's saying, isn't it? Jesus, the Christ, is so important that he must be that one thing, and you must deny yourself up to the point of taking our cross in order to follow him. We follow a rejected Christ. We follow a suffering Christ. We follow a Christ who died on the cross, who was murdered on the cross. And so we too have to realize that as we follow Him, we also have to be willing to suffer just as He suffered. And we live in a world which is adulterous and wicked and it's going to put pressure on us in order for us to be adulterous and wicked just like it is. But Jesus says, that's a foolish decision. If you are ashamed of Jesus today, then when Jesus comes in His glory, with His holy angels, He will be ashamed of you. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly want to ask you to really let your words, the words of Jesus, sink into our minds. That the Christ was predestined, preordained, predetermined to be rejected by men, to suffer and to go to the cross and to rise again after three days. To follow such a Christ in an adulterous and wicked world will inevitably bring rejection, bring derision, bring even persecution. But help us never to be ashamed of Jesus and His words. Help us to see that that is truly foolish. For what is the point of gaining the whole world, even the approval of this world, if we were to lose our eternal soul in the kingdom of God? Dear Father, help us to see that indeed it is the wisest decision to be loyal to Jesus, to follow Jesus, to be his disciple, and to deny ourselves, to say no to ourselves, even to the taking out of our cross. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.